in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and her brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Online last night I punched in just the title, 1 Corinthians. I was thinking I had seen at one point along my travels a church that was called the 1 Corinthians something something church. I don't remember what came after it. I was trying to remember where I had seen it, and so I started kind of looking for it. So I typed in some different names of churches and stuff and 1 Corinthians on it, and I didn't find the one I thought I would find. But I did find it out in New York, in New York City. There's a church called 1 Corinthians Baptist Church. And in Chicago, there's a 1 Corinthians Baptist Church. i got to admit, I'm feeling intrigued. <laughs> it, it escapes me why you would name a church 1 Corinthians Baptist Church. If you want to name a church after something like that, Berean Baptist makes sense. There's a church in the falls called Berean Baptist. There's other churches around the nation and probably around the world called Berean Baptist. That one makes sense because you know what the Bible says about the Bereans? It said they were more noble than the Thessalonians. And that was saying something. In fact, if you you were going to be First Thessalonian Baptist Church, that wouldn't be a bad thing because Paul usually measures churches and people by three things. Faith, hope, and love. First Thessalonians... Right off the bat in chapter 1, he commends them for all three of those things. First Thessalonians Baptist Church would be a good name. Berean Baptist Church, good name. Because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if the things that the Apostle Paul was telling them were true. So that would be a good name. First Corinthians, not so much. The Corinthian church was a church that just was corrected. Most of the letter is correcting of that group of people and instructing them on how to do it better, how to do it right. And so, 1 Corinthians is not really a good name. That's nothing new. Corinth has not had a good name throughout history. It was a place with a lot of trade coming in and out of it, very prosperous, very wealthy. And because of that, it attracted a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different behaviors. And it was a very ungodly place. They had temples that worshipped other gods in the city of Corinth. There was a temple there built in honor and worship of Aphrodite. And it claimed to have a thousand priestesses, which were also prostitutes that were there. And so there was a lot of immorality in the city of Corinth. In fact, the word Corinth was used to describe immorality. It's kind of like down through history they've used the word sodomites because of what happened in Sodom to describe that lifestyle or that behavior, that sinfulness. Well, Corinth, same thing. The word Corinth was used to describe people that lived an immoral lifestyle. And so the culture around them was just horrible. But here's the encouraging thing. As we wade ourselves through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to find that the primary goal of the book, the primary theme that he's trying to get the church on board with and to teach them how to do, is to live out their life consistently with the Gospel. 
And we find that as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, as he's correcting them in different things, he often points to either the entire gospel or an aspect of the gospel, like the death of Christ on the cross or the resurrection of Christ from the dead, or an aspect of the gospel as why we need to change or how we need to change or giving us the motivation to change. And so the gospel and learning how to live out the gospel in our life is really the answer for our struggle against temptations and sin that we find within the culture that we live. And so that's what he's doing. He's writing to people that were part of a culture that was very different from what the Bible commands us to be. Many of them are having a hard time shaking off the old habits and the old ways. And he's saying, look at the gospel. You need to shake those habits. You need to shake that sinfulness and live out this new life in Christ because of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And so at the very beginning of the of this epistle, he says, look, the gospel is where the wisdom of God is. The gospel is what's going to direct our, our life. It's going to make our decisions. He ends very much the same way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which chapter 16 is just kind of his goodbyes and his closing address. Chapter 15 is all about the resurrection and it starts out this way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so he says, look, I want to remind you of this thing, and the thing I want to remind you of is the Gospel. And it's of first importance. And let me remind you what the Gospel is. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and for our eternal life. So we have Him starting with the Gospel and we have Him ending with the Gospel. But throughout the middle of the of 1 Corinthians, He also refers to the Gospel as He exhorts them to follow certain commands. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, He's calling the church to exercise church discipline over one of its members who has gotten involved in some egregious sin. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. When we get to these passages as we work our way through, we'll spend a lot more time. But basically what he's doing is he's saying Christ is our Passover lamb. Remember the Passover when God passed over Israel when he destroyed the firstborn in Egypt? When God brought judgment, he passed over Israel if they sacrificed this lamb. But part of that festival was to clean out the yeast out of their house because yeast represents sin. He's encouraging these people to deal with the sin that was in the church. And he says, why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And we need to celebrate that without sin, without leaven. And so the gospel is the reason that we needed to deal with sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, it says, The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So in talking about the issue of immorality, he says, why should we not be participating in it? Because our body, it will be resurrected. In fact, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? Why? Why? Because of the gospel. He says you were bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body. So again, that gospel is the reason. But then also when we get up to chapter 8 and verse 11, he says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. He's talking about what they eat. Most of it I just want to set aside for now, but it boils down to this. He says, look, with what even you eat or drink, you can cause harm to somebody that's watching you based on where they're at in their faith. And so his conclusion is this, am I really going to destroy a brother in Christ, somebody for whom Christ died? There's the gospel again. Am I really going to destroy somebody for whom Christ died over a piece of meat or something to drink? I don't think so. And so he's encouraging them to walk in love instead. But the reasoning here, obviously, back to the gospel. That person that you're relating to, that person that you're setting an example for, is somebody Christ died for. And so that ought to impact our behavior. And so, quite simply, the challenge to Corinth in that day and the challenge to us is simply this, is that we need to be living the gospel. It's done mostly through negative examples. As we get to see how they failed, we get to succeed. You know, several years ago, at one of our family Christmas events, we played this game with uh, candy canes. Lots of candy canes out on the table, the big coffee table. And then you put a candy cane in your mouth and you had, uh, you had a certain amount of time. I think it was like 30 seconds or a minute. And the person that can scoop up the most candy canes and put them in their container is the winner. But you just take turns. You don't, not everybody doing it at once. Leslie went first. Now, Leslie's a little bit competitive and we like that in her. She went first. And she's trying to pick up a candy cane with her thing. And, and, and she went and she got a few candy canes. And I trounced her really bad in this. Because I think I went next. And I saw how she did it. And I thought, boy, that ain't the way to do it. How can you do that? And so I put the candy cane in my mouth. And I went to the other side of the table, stretched across there, and just raked across the whole pile. And a big conglomeration of them was all hooked to my candy cane as it came up out of there. And I'll tell you, the first thing you heard is, wait a minute, I get another try, she says. <laughs> Why? What was my advantage? My advantage was I got to watch her and say, yeah, that's not the way to do it. And then because of that, I came up with a better way. And by the end, I don't, I don't think I ended up winning the game. Somebody else did that got another couple advantages by watching the thing progress, right? Well, that's what we get to do with Corinth. We get to watch how they did things and say, yeah, that's not the way to do it. But in doing so, we get to learn the right way to do it and we get to prosper in our spiritual lives just as the Apostle Paul was calling them to prosper in their spiritual lives. But we get to do it without that painful bumps that they had to learn from. And so that's what we want to look at. Now, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to point out three principles because there are some things that he repeated many times that are foundational principles to be able to live out the gospel in. The first of those principles that he lists, if we're going to live out the gospel in an effective way within our society, we need wisdom. In fact, in the first three chapters, the word wisdom is used 24 times. The words uh, wise, wisdom. He also uses words like understanding and discernment as well. Now, he's predominantly doing a couple different things. He's telling them, first off, you need to reject the wisdom of the world. He says the world in their wisdom does not accept Christ. They do not believe in Christ. They do not understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. In uh, chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. 
He's not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Basically, through those three chapters, he's saying you need to reject the spirit that is offered by the world and you need to embrace the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit from God. The wisdom that is found in the Gospel. Because the Gospel, he says, is foolishness to those who are lost, but it's wisdom, it's power to us who are being saved. But not only do we deal with wisdom, but another principle that he deals with is worship. As he's going to spend a decent amount of time within 1 Corinthians outlining for them how to worship. Because they're struggling not only with immorality in the church and not only with divisiveness within the church, they're even studying with how do we worship God. They're following fantastic gifts and they're gifted people. But they're following fantastic gifts and they're, but they're even misusing gifts. They've turned the Lord's Supper into kind of a first come, first serve potluck where some people are just gorging themselves and other people aren't getting anything at all. And, and, and they've turned the use of gifts in a way to prop up themselves through their self-centeredness. And through all of this, he has to teach them how to worship. He tells them, look, God's not the author of confusion and your services are totally confusing in the way that you're worshiping. If we're going to live out the gospel, we need these principles to be active in our life. We need the wisdom that comes from God. We need to take our cues from the Word of God, from that objective standard of truth, and just how we worship. But then not only does he lay out the principle of worship, but he also focuses quite a bit on love. In fact, within 1 Corinthians is chapter 13, which is known far and wide as the love chapter, because he just highlights the importance of love. And it's comparison to other gifts. It's in 1 Corinthians that he comes down to this and he says, look, you guys are pursuing all these gifts and all these other things. He says, let me show you a better way. It really boils down to three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these things is love. He applies it to different ways. Remember where we talked about their issue with food? And he says, look, you can eat a piece of food sometimes or drink something that will tear down the faith of somebody that Christ died for. Let me show you a better way. Love. Love that person more than you love yourself. Love that person more than you want that piece of meat. Love that person more than your own liberty. That's the principle that we ought to be pursuing. And he just applies that to these different areas. Well, love is a predominant principle. If we're going to live out our life according to the Gospel, love's got to be right up there because what is the motivation for the Gospel? Isn't it love? Why did God give His only begotten Son? The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. So if we're going to live out the Gospel, if we're going to flesh it out in our life in an effective way, then love is going to have to be part of it. So we're going to need the wisdom of God. We're going to need a consistent and mature worship of God. And we're going to need the love of God if we're going to flesh out the Gospel in our life in an effective way. Well, then lastly, I've gleaned three insights. I'm not saying they're the only three insights, but I think they stand out the most predominantly as you look at the the message of 1 Corinthians as a whole. What are the things that we really take away from, from 1 Corinthians? What are the insights that we can apply to our lives in a very practical way that'll help us in our Christian life? So that if God was to write a letter, an epistle to Little Fork Baptist, today, what would it say? If we want our letter to not look like theirs, to look more like maybe the letter to the Thessalonians, then we need to be paying attention. But not only just to Little Park Baptist, what if God was writing a letter to you? 
individually. Well, it's by putting in the, to work these principles of wisdom, worship, and love, and these insights that I'm going to share with you now, that we can use these in a very practical way in our life to make a difference. The first insight that I would glean from 1 Corinthians is that deliverance makes a difference. Deliverance makes a difference. You see, the book as a whole is dealing with Christians that have been delivered. They've put their faith in Christ. In fact, in the passage that we read this morning, he said that they will be, because of their faith in Christ, they will be blameless when they stand before God at the end of their life. Why will they be blameless? Because they're blameless in their behavior? No. He's pointing out a lot of blame in their behavior. He says you will be blameless because Christ. Christ died for your sins and rose again from the dead and your faith in Him attributes His righteousness to your account so you will be blameless when you stand before Christ. But this group of people was having a hard time dropping the sins of the past. And mainly what he's telling them through the whole book is your deliverance is to make a difference in your life. You should not be the same person after you're saved as you were before you were saved. There is no way on earth that a life without the Holy Spirit can have the Holy Spirit move into that life and He doesn't want to rearrange the furniture. Right? The Holy Spirit coming into your old sinful life is going to rearrange the furniture. He's going to change things. He's going to change you. And so while Christ accepts you how you are, He died for you in your sin, He's not going to leave you there. Why? Because your deliverance is complete. Remember we learned not too awful long ago, He's going to justify you before Him. Positionally, you are clean before Christ. But then He's also going to deliver you from the day-to-day sins in your life. He's going to give you power over those things as you live out your life before Him. And eventually, He's going to take even the presence of those sins away when you stand before Him in heaven. And you'll be glorified at that time. And even your sin nature will be completely eradicated. And so the deliverance that we receive from Jesus is complete. We are completely clean the moment we put our faith in Christ. But our life continues to get cleaned as we learn how to live out that life in Christ. And our life will ultimately be totally clean as we stand before Him. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, notice what he calls us to right off the bat. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified. He's talking to people that uh, there's a lot of sin going on in that church, but he refers to them as sanctified. He says, in Christ, you've been set apart. That's what the word sanctified means. Set apart unto God. He says, you've been sanctified. Called to be saints. You're a saint. You see, a a saint biblically is not uh, like the Catholic's idea of some super-Christian. That is totally not what a saint is. A saint is anybody that has put their faith in Jesus Christ because the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are set apart unto God. You are special unto God. I know that as Christians, we still stumble and we fall. We trip and we get back up. The Bible says a righteous man falls down seven times and gets back up. That's a, we, we get back up. But here's the deal. When we want to describe our life, and at times you'll hear people say, well, I'm no saint. Well, you know what? For a Christian, that is not our motto. Our motto, no matter whether we continue to fall and get back up, fall and get back up, fall, we are a saint. We are set apart unto God. Now, live like it. Right? It's kind of like the family I grew up in. I grew up a McClellan. I am a McClellan. I'll always be a McClellan. I can't not be a McClellan. It was never a matter of when I behaved this way or that way as I was growing up and through my teenage years and stuff. It was not, never a matter of whether I was a McClellan. But there were lots of times where I was told to live like it. And what, what that meant... To, 
we did and things that we meant it didn't do. Well, that's what God is doing here too. Jesus says, you guys are saints. Now, you're not living like it. This church wasn't living like it at the moment. He says, now get out there and live like it. Flesh out that gospel. And so that's the whole point. As you look at the big picture of what's going on here, one of the, one of the insights that we get from it is deliverance makes a difference. If you say, I bowed my knee and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, then let's see it in your life. Because if it's real, if it's a reality, it should be bearing fruit. And that's exactly his message to the Corinthians and his message to us. Well, secondly, the second insight I'd say is spiritual giftedness needs to be directed by spiritual maturity. By spiritual maturity. Very important. The Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was very gifted. In fact, right at the beginning of the letter, he acknowledged that. In verses 4-7 through of chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that. He said about the Corinthian church, and he's going to teach them deeper about spiritual gifts farther into the passage or into the book. But he says, look, when it comes to gifts, he says, this church is not lacking any gifts. This is a gifted church. Now, they were gifted in a lot of those because of the time frame that we're dealing with in that apostolic area. Era, there were a lot of the sign gifts we're still in operation. We'll deal with that when we get to the teaching about the gifts. But there were things like tongues and prophecies and, and interpretations of prophecies and, and things that were happening. But here's the deal. You know what the, the church services at Corinth looked like? They looked like this guy standing up over here to say a prophecy and this guy stands up over here and talks right up over the top of him because he has a prophecy too. This guy over here stands up and speaks in a tongue that nobody understands what he's saying and there isn't anybody that stands up and gives an interpretation of what he says. So this guy's babbling on in some goggly goop that nobody knows what he's saying and nobody, and so nobody's being edified at all. People are talking over the top of one another. The Apostle Paul literally said, look, if a stranger comes into your service, he's gonna, he's not gonna know what in the world's going on. And he's not going to be able to understand half of what's being said because you're talking over the top of each other and you're speaking in tongues that nobody understands. And so uh, he's going to leave confused and, if anything, driven away from the Gospel, not brought to it. But wait a minute. How can that happen? These are spiritual gifts. Well, the Apostle Paul is teaching them that spiritual gifts need to be operated under, needed to be, need to be directed by spiritual maturity. You see, they didn't have the maturity to stand and wait for that person to finish his prophecy and we could discuss that before needing to stand up and say my prophecy or put in my two cents. It was like a, it was like a lot of the political talk shows that you watch on TV these days where they're just talking over the top of one another. That, to the shame of the Corinthian church, that was the church service. And the Apostle Paul says, look, God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. And the subject, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, that whole idea of just the Holy Spirit taking over and you just bursting into some unknown tongue, totally unscriptural. doesn't happen. He says you control yourselves. You mature. You grow up. And you know what? That's the thing. When we first come to Christ, we are, a, we are an infant. 
We are an infant in Christ. And we are already experiencing spiritual gifts that we get to start using. But we need to learn how to use them in a grown-up way, in a mature way. In fact, spirituality is a mature and maturing relationship that happens with the Holy Spirit over the course of time. That's exactly why, like in the, in the, in the letter to Timothy, when he tells them to appoint uh, pastors, he tells them, don't pick somebody that's new in the faith. Why? They need time to mature in that faith, to, to, to grow up in that faith. Not a novice, not somebody that's new at it. And so, spiritual giftedness, a lot of times that gets the highlights because when somebody has a gift that's amazing, wow, that's, that, get them up front. Get them doing that. Get them doing that. Well, hold on. Maybe slow down a little bit. Maybe we need to be careful how fast we push people to the front. How, maybe giftedness isn't the whole kit and caboodle here. And it's not. Giftedness needs to be accompanied by maturity to have effectiveness and long-standing ministry. We see in Corinth exactly they struggled with that because just as in in the first chapter he tells them how that they lacked in no gift. They they had this tremendous giftedness within the church. He also says in chapter three that they have a lot of immaturity. He says, But I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. You For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's saying, look, as long as we can see these amazing gifts coming out of you, but they're not practiced in the context of of love for other people and patience, then you're immature. And that's what we need to recognize is spiritual giftedness has to be directed by spiritual maturity. Very important. And then lastly, liberty needs to be tempered with love. And that brings us right back to, we've already addressed it a couple times, so we'll just end with it quickly here. But he says, look, in the area, one of the areas that they wrote to him about, whether we can eat the meat that's offered to idols or not, he basically comes to the conclusion that if you can eat it in faith, you can eat it. If you can't eat it in faith, then don't eat it. But those of you that can eat it in faith, if you're around somebody that's not can't eat it in faith, if you eat it in front of them, you're going to do harm to that person. Is doing harm really what we want to do in that situation? Is standing on my liberty? Now we know as, as Christians, liberty is very important to us. And the Apostle Paul and other epistles would tell them, do not let people bring you in bondage again, away from the liberty that, where Christ has set you free. But you know what? In our exercise of Christian liberty, in our exercise of liberty, we sometimes need to willingly and gladly set aside our liberty. Can I do this thing? Yes, you can do that thing. Should I do this thing? Uh, Sometimes maybe not. But what's the... How do we know? Love. Love will tell you how you know. The willingness to set aside some of our freedoms for the good of others is that love which needs to temper our liberty. So as we begin this study, and we just kind of scrape the surface here a little bit, that's the goal today. The goal today, one of my goals always in starting a book study is that any time you pick up the book that we've studied, 
that hopefully you can, in, in reading anywhere in it, you kind of know where you fit in the overall big picture. And that's what we got today is the big picture. And the big picture is the Apostle Paul used many different ways to teach these people. The big picture is predominantly this, that we need the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. We need to worship God and exercise love as we try to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we do that, the deliverance that we experience through Christ should make a difference in our life. It should produce fruit. The giftedness, the spiritual giftedness that we have needs to be directed by spiritual maturity. We need to make sure we're responding in in ways that show uh, spiritual maturity, not just exercising the gifts that the Holy Spirit does give us. And then lastly, our liberty needs to be uh, uh, tempered with the love that we have for the people that are around us.